Well, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and our text this morning will be verses 1 through 2. We opened up this book as an introduction a couple of weeks ago, and just as a way of reminder, the book of Hebrews is written to an audience that were uh, Hebrew Christians that had faced persecution in the past. They were looking to possibly face persecution in the near future. It was beginning to rise, and they had this idea of going back to Judaism. And so this letter or this sermon was uh, composed for this purpose that they would see the superiority of Christ. And as we look at verses 1 through 2, or most of verse 2 this morning, what we see is what they needed to hear, and that is that Christ is superior. And specifically, these verses this morning teach us that Christ is the superior revelation of God. He is the final revelation of God. He is the complete revelation of God. And by revelation, I mean that God has revealed something of himself to mankind, and Christ is the fulfillment of it. He is the completion of it. But as we look at these verses we are confronted with one simple comforting truth. God is a God that speaks. God is a God that makes himself known. And the fullness of that is seen in his Son. And so as we think about this, that God is a God that speaks. And we look at how he has spoken to us, how it's come to us, how we have received it today in this word called the Bible we're confronted with a number of questions. How do we view the Word of God? Do we view this Bible as God's self-revelation to mankind? Is this Bible just a collection of stories that might be helpful? Or is it the God who created all things the God that is beyond all comprehension, that is eternal, that is immutable, that is everywhere present, that is all-powerful, that is all-knowing. Is it the God that decreed all things from eternity according to His perfect will? And He has given us a sliver of knowledge of His infinite nature that we may know Him. Is, is that the book that we have here? Is that the God that has given us his word? Because that's the word we encounter this morning, is a word from God himself. And what we see in this text is he makes this argument, is that Christ is the superior revelation that he has given. And he makes this case through contrast of previous revelation of himself. And we'll see that throughout this entire message this morning, is that the author, and God's word is by way of contrast, showing us the superiority of Christ. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 2. Halfway through verse 2 will be our text. So this is the word of God. Long ago, at many times... 
And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And that is the Word of God. You see, the first contrast that should come up is the very first two words there in our English translation, long ago, versus verse 2, last days. That's the first contrast we see as an epoch of time. In long ago times, in previous days, God spoke this way. But in these days, He has spoken this way. And so He says, long ago, that is that old Testament period of time where God reveals Himself. And you think of how God reveals Himself to the patriarchs and before. He revealed Himself to Noah. He revealed Himself to Abraham. He reveals Himself to Jacob and so on throughout the New Testament or the Old Testament. And then He reveals Himself to Moses who compiles all of that together. And then we come to this period of time and the end of the Old Testament period of Malachi, you close off. And then there's a period of silence for 400 years. You see, between the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bibles, we just turn one page and we go from Malachi, we're in Matthew. But what we don't see is that there was 400 years of silence where God had ceased communicating to His people. And that marked the end of an era. That was the period that the Bible calls us long ago. But now we come into this new epoch of time, this new period, which is identified by these words, last days. And what, is, what marks the last days that we have to see is it's the time between Christ's life, His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and His second coming. So, biblically speaking, when we talk about the last days, the last days are from the time of Christ's ascension until when Christ returns again. We typically think of last days as that that period of time right before Christ returns. And there will come a time that that we don't know when that will be, but when Christ will return. And there will be obviously some days that are going to be before then that we would say, those are really the last days. But actually, we live in the last days. Paul lived in the last days. Augustine lived in the last days. Martin Luther lived in the last days. You and I live in the last days. And if we should should see future generations come beyond us, they too will be living in the last days. And literally, when we read in the Greek these words of the last days, it's the eschaton. That is that branch of theology called eschatology, which is a study of the end times. So it literally says, but in these end times, we live in these end times, 
And what we have to understand is this, what is significant about this in times, God has spoken, it's complete, you and I are not waiting for God's salvific promises to come about. What do I mean by that? We're not waiting for God to provide redemption for us. God already has. He has already fulfilled it in the person of His Son. It has come about. We're told this in 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, what we have been given in God's revelation was for the purpose of instructing us, but it is now complete in the person of Christ. And so as the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people that are under the threat of persecution, thinking about going back to their former way of life, He asks this question, why would you embrace or think about going back to the way things were? Now, this is super important to note this about these last days and what marks the Christian life of these last days. We are waiting for Christ to return. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 28, he says this, we are eagerly waiting for him. We're not, though, looking for a new word from God. Verse 26 of chapter 9 says this, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words... What God had in His plan of redemption has taken place in Christ. We're not awaiting in these last days a new word from God, a new revelation from God, as if the revelation of God in His Son was not complete. We're awaiting the Son Himself. How comforting that is. And the point of that contrast of the long ago period where there was constantly a new word from God is that we're not waiting for that new word. We already have it. It's fulfilled in Christ. And in Christ alone, we have assurance. The promises of God are fulfilled in Him. So rather than look backwards or look for a new word, we simply live our lives eagerly awaiting in these last days the return of the Son. That's what marks these days. Now we see also another contrast, not only in an epoch of time, but also the manner in which God spoke. You'll notice what it says in verse 1. God spoke to our fathers. And previously it had said, at many times and in many ways, he spoke to our fathers. That's the whole compass of Old Testament people. He does this in many ways and in many parts. But then you look at verse 2. In the last days, he's spoken. It's done. 
And so we see this in our understanding of the different ways that God has communicated to his people. One was progressive because it was in part, it wasn't complete. But in Christ, there's fulfillment. What do I mean by progressive? Well, it says he spoke many times and in many ways. It means that the revelation of God was ongoing. It was continuing. And while it was authoritative, it did not reveal all that was to be revealed. You think of, and I like to see the Old Testament as this picture, is if you have ever put together a puzzle... You have many numerous pieces to that puzzle. And the individual pieces themselves do not show you the whole picture. It's when you start putting them together that you see the full picture. That's what the revelation of God in the Old Testament was like. You're given these pieces, but it's not until you see those pieces all put together and then actually truly explained by Christ where you see the fulfillment of them. But it is this fact that we see as God has revealed himself. Now, just as a point of reference, there's two types of ways that God reveals himself in nature. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that men are without an excuse because they can see creation and see that God has created them. That is God's general or natural revelation. It's available to to everyone. But then there's a special revelation of God. That is where God reveals himself by word. You see in the Old Testament narratives, hymns, proverbs, poetry, parables, prophetic. You see all sorts of ways in which God has revealed himself to mankind. But in these last days, we're told this, he has spoken. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner says this, a new day has risen, a new covenant has arrived, and the old is no longer in force. The first covenant is old and hence obsolete. The words of the previous era are authoritative as the word of God, but they must be interpreted in light of the fulfillment realized in Jesus Christ. In other words, in days long ago, and in many ways and in many forms, that was a progressive continuing revelation pointing us to something that is fulfilled in Christ. But what was in the past, though it's still authoritative, though it is still God's word, it's become obsolete. In fact, this is what Hebrews 8.13 says. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, the old covenant has become obsolete. Why? Because there's a new covenant here. One that was prophesied. One that was pointed to throughout the Old Testament. Pointing to something that would take happen, would come about. So this is incredibly relevant to us today. Listen to me carefully. There will be no continuing revelation of God's Word. God is not speaking new words outside of His Bible. Is he speaking through the word of God by his spirit to us in our hearts? Yes. Does he speak through the teaching 
and authoritative preaching. He has to. If we take seriously what we read in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, that we are to preach with authority. So yes, in that sense, God is still speaking. But there's not a new word coming. He speaks to us through His word. Well, there's movements out there that say, well, you know, what is God, what is God telling you? But if that's not followed up by chapter and verse, we actually have no way of what God, uh, knowing what God is telling us. God speaks to us through His Word, by His Spirit. We're not waiting for a new word as if this word was not enough, because He has spoken. It's complete. Many people want to hear a new word. There's some that will look at Events that are taking place in the world today and rise that to the level of authority to say this is what is taking place in God's timetable rather than simply letting the Word of God come to us. And here's why we must know that what we read in the Old Testament and what we read in the New Testament is authoritative, because what I want you to notice what it says, God spoke, but in these last days, He has spoken. Who's the author of the speaking? In long ago days, it was God. In these last days, it was God who has spoken. It's the same author. And so while the Old Testament was progressive in what it revealed, it was the same author speaking both times. One, that is the Old Testament, points to the other, the New Testament. And the New is the fulfillment of what the other pointed to. The Old Testament finds its completion in the New Testament. But this teaches us something. God spoke long ago in many ways, but today He has spoken... We cannot think that the God of the Old Testament was different from the New Testament. So when you read of God's commands to go wipe out the Amorites, the Girgashites, and all the other ites out there, that's the same God speaking to us in the New Testament. When you see the wrath of God in the Old Testament, that's the same God that is executing wrath in the New Testament. When you see the merciful love of God in the Old Testament, that is the same merciful, loving God we see in the New Testament. There's not two different gods, one of the Old Testament or one of the New Testament, or this God of the Old Testament became self-aware and realized he was rather wrathful and had to become more loving. No, it's the same God who is the same yesterday and today and forever will be the same. And so we must see the Old Testament, yes, as authoritative, just as the New Testament is authoritative. We just have to recognize what applied to the Old Covenant as a foreshadowing of what was to come versus that has what has come and what is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why... We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. 
that is in Christ, all that was pointed to find their fulfillment in Him. So, let me ask you this question, and I know this is maybe technical, but it's important because we all have our Bibles with us. We all pick up our Bibles. We come to church to hear the Bible preach, so it's important for us to think about this. What is the continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And how do we understand, how do we read the relationship of the Old Testament and the New? And you see all of these promises in the Old Testament. But what did Paul just tell us in 2 Corinthians? They all find their yes in him. You know, so for instance, how do we understand all of these promises in the Old Testament for land? That there would be land fulfillments. Well, in one sense, you see that that's fulfilled in David's time, but then there's also something greater in terms of land that were promised in Christ, isn't there? Actually, the idea of land promises that we see in the Old Testament only gave us a brief glimpse of the beauty that we will see in the New Testament. And what is our promise of land in the New Testament? A new heavens and a new earth. And we actually experience that in part right now, don't we? Because is not Christ sovereign over all of the heavens and the earth? And did not Christ command us to go out throughout all of the earth? And does he not have domain over it all as Lord and has empowered his church to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel? Yeah, we, do not, we do not experience the fullness of that. Now we're awaiting that for a purification by fire, as we see. But in some sense, as Christ says, if these things are happening, the kingdom is here in your midst. It's here now. We experience the universal lordship and presence of Christ with his church now. Now, what about the law? What about the law in the Old Testament? How much of that continues and how much of it is discontinued? Well, very very plainly, I think most everyone agrees that the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. There's some groups that might want to return to some of the Old Covenant ceremonial laws of sacrifice, but that would be more on the fringe and even borderline heretical. But those ceremonial laws were for a purpose. They were to teach us to look to Christ, who would be that ultimate sacrifice of God. But what about the judicial law? What is the judicial law? The judicial law was the application of God's moral law. It's what governed the people in the land. What do we do when someone does this sin? Well, the judicial law told the people how to do that. It governed a people that were set aside for a piece of land. And it teaches us today the true application of justice. But what's interesting is when Paul addresses the church and he uses that judicial law in the New Testament, for instance, with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the man that has committed adultery, Paul doesn't say you're to take him out and stone him to death as they would have in the Old Covenant that was tied to a particular piece of land, and if they didn't follow that, they would receive the curses of Sinai. He says kick him out of the church so that he may experience spiritual death that he may be brought in. 
So yes, the judicial law of the Old Testament is very valuable to us in the church and governs how we think of the church, but we see its spiritual application of it. Sometimes there's a very shallow reading of that that wants to apply it in a way that just frankly, Paul didn't apply it, nor did Christ. But what about the moral law? That is the Ten Commandments. That's the eternal character of God. And actually, we're told in the New Covenant that that law will be written on our hearts, we will be given a desire, and the work of the Spirit in our lives will create those desires to keep God's moral law. So is there continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yeah, absolutely. Is there discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yes, absolutely. And we have to be careful in how we recognize those two. To not will take us in an extreme of one way or the other. But the whole point that this author makes to us is this. God speaks to His people. God did not have to reveal Himself. God did not have to reveal Himself through promises. God did not have to reveal Himself through a law. God did not have to reveal Himself through His Son. And the only way we could understand who God is, outside of what we could gather from nature itself, has to be given to us from God. The very fact that God speaks is a demonstration of God's great love that He does speak. Because only if He speaks can we know His plan of redemption. God is not a mute idol. God is not silent. God is not one, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. That's not the God of the Bible. We're not sitting around waiting, I I, I wish I could know something of God because He has made Himself known. You think of Elijah in his confrontation with the prophets of Baal where they're trying to get their gods to respond. And, And Elijah says so wonderfully, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve spoke, and the God we serve has spoken. And he has done it with finality now. You see, there's a constant threat upon this truth of God that he speaks. You see it right from the beginning in Genesis, where Satan appears to Eve in the form of a serpent and asks Eve of just a real subtle question. It's one that we all hear every time we're tempted to sin. Did God really say? That's what we all have to face. There's this constant threat of that. There's a constant satanic threat to undermine the Word of God. But let me tell you, Satan doesn't have to tempt us to doubt God's Word. There's a threat that's an abiding voice that is constantly in our ear. And you know what that voice is? 
that's constantly undermining the Word of God, that's abiding with us always, it's our heart. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Do not follow your heart. Follow God's word because God has spoken. We see where the way our heart speaks. Our heart will lead us astray. But the God who created all that exists will never lead you astray. He can't because he does not lie. And he never changes. We also see not only a contrast in time and a contrast in the way that God has spoken versus he speaks now. And that's we see a contrast in the audience. And I want you to notice this. You'll see in verse 1, he spoke to our fathers. Again, I believe this is a Jewish Christian audience. Ethnically, they were Jewish, but they had come to saving faith. And then you'll notice in verse 2, it's the word us. And the fathers, we typically think of Jacob, uh, or Abraham, Jacob, and, and Isaac as the fathers. But this is really actually just meaning everyone that was addressed in the Old Testament. But it was a set people. It was the physical offspring of Abraham. And in the Old Testament, even though that address was to a specific people that were, again, the physical offspring of Abraham, we're told in that same Old Testament that there's coming a day where it will not be just to the physical descendants, but it will be to everyone. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16. By the way, if you're studying the New Covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is quoted twice in, in Hebrews, you can't understand it apart from this passage. This is a crucial key text to understanding the promise of the new covenant. In verse 16, and it says, And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in those, last, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall say, say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. That is a foreshadowing of what would take place in the new covenant that was spoken to the fathers that there's coming a day that he will speak to us. You know, again, if Hebrews are ethnically, these Hebrews are ethnically Jewish, but they are Christians, it means that he's addressing specifically the church. This is the mystery of the Jew and Gentile relations that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 this mystery is 
that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In those, those long ago days, in many ways, in many times, this was a mystery, but Paul says it's no longer a mystery. And Paul also teaches us this in such a wonderful truth, is this in, in Galatians chapter 3, in verses 7 and 8, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. What a wonderful truth that we teach from childhood in singing the song, Our Father Abraham. But I'm not ethnically Jewish. But yet the Word of God says that Abraham is my father because I am of his seed, the seed of the woman, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I can properly, through faith, say that I am of Abraham. But this is so wonderful that Paul tells us that he promised this to Abraham beforehand, which means this, when we get to the new covenant, it's not God's plan B. There's some theology that looks like that Christ came, they didn't recognize him, so he had to change his plan at the last minute. That's rank heresy. God doesn't have a plan B. God has a plan. And it's working itself out perfectly. We also see not only a contrast of the audience, we see a contrast in the messenger. In verse 1, it's the prophets. In verse 2, it's by his son. The messenger in the Old Testament were the prophets, and that's all those that God revealed himself to for the purpose of communication to write something down. And all of those prophets wrote something that was, was important for their time, but had a greater significance pointing forward. And what we see here is that in these last days, because he has spoken to us by a superior prophet, the prophet that Moses tells us, one greater than me will come, and that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of God's revelation. Let me just show it to you in a number of different texts. John chapter 1 in verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that is God, Jesus Christ, specifically, has made Him known. Who makes God known to us? Jesus, as God Himself, in human flesh. Or you think of what this means, of this fullness of revelation. In the Old Testament, it was as if they, they had very little light, but in the New Testament comes this light, and this is why Matthew applies Isaiah's words to the Lord Jesus Christ. When he, the coming of Christ, he says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. With the coming of Christ, light has come into 
the world. Someone, something is greater here. And that Jesus Himself, as He reveals God, He has made the Father known. In fact, we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, He was proclaiming the gospel of God. He was proclaiming the words of His Father. And by the way, this was the expectation for the Messiah. And it's funny, the Jewish people, so many of them missed it, but a Samaritan woman gathered it. In fact, you see this in John chapter 4, verse 25. The woman, a Samaritan woman who was outcast by the Jewish people, said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She understood it. She understood the finality of the coming of the Messiah in which in Him we would know all things. John writes of this in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He has given us understanding so that for this purpose we may know Him who is true, and we who are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and God and eternal life. It is the Son that makes the Father known. The Son did this. Now you you have to be asking this question. Okay, we see the words of the Son in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but then we have all of these other passages. One of the worst things that has happened in modern church history is to view the words that were written down by Paul as being different than the words of Jesus. When you read the book of Ephesians, you're reading Jesus' words. When you read Galatians, you're reading the words of Jesus. When you read Genesis, you're reading the words of Jesus. But what about all of those other books outside of the New uh, out of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Jesus tells us this. He says in John 14, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So how do we have these books? Well, because Jesus promised His disciples that He would give them the words And what did those disciples, what did the apostles do? They wrote them down exactly as the Holy Spirit commanded them. And then you see, the final command of the Lord Jesus was this, in Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How could they do that? How could they teach And how could we, 2,000 years later, be recipients of this teaching? Well, Jesus promised them, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to teach you these things, and you're to write them down. By the way, if you look at verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, who is the them? That's very important in how we understand who receives and who follows the commands of God. It's those that were made disciples and then baptized. Discipling comes before the baptism. 
followed by being taught to follow all that Jesus commanded. That is what we are given. Now, so what does this mean? We've already alluded to this completion of revelation, but I just want to go back to this word spoken for a second. If it's all complete in Christ, and we see the word spoken, which means it's done, it's final, there's no continuing revelation of God, we have to know something about that. Again, God's word that he has given us is complete, it's final, that means it's sufficient. I don't need to go outside of God's word for direction in my life. The Puritan, Matthew Poole, in his commentary, writes on the uniqueness of the Son. He says, it makes it indispensably indispensably necessary that it be also absolutely perfect, from which nothing can be taken to which nothing can be added. In other words, we can't take from this word, and we can't add to this word, because Christ gave us this word. And if we add to the word, do you know that addition to God's word is actually subtraction from it? But we have been given a complete word. It was written down by the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2.20 says that the foundation of the church is the apostles and Christ being the cornerstone. Hey, just real quick, are there apostles today? No. How do you lay another foundation if a foundation has been laid? You don't. That's the point. We have a complete word given to us in Christ. Let me tell you, that sets the conscience at ease. That sets your soul at ease. And here's why. God is not a God of chaos. If I had to wait for some sort of special revelation of God to bring me comfort, my mind, I don't know about yours, is very fallible and at times horribly twisted. Do I want to wait what comes through my mind and say that that's God to have some sort of comfort or assurance of salvation? I don't know about you, but you can ask yourself that. Rather, we have God's word that he has given us. There's great comfort in that. If it was me waiting for God and whether I got the liver shivers at the right time, and I said, oh, that must be God communicating to me or not. No, God has spoken. I don't have to look anywhere else. But there's something else also by contrast we have to see here. It was by the prophets, the messengers were the prophets today, it's by his son. And we see already what Christ has done in bringing us this message. But there's also something very theological that we have to understand by that. And it's the idea of the son. In fact, we see in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, Israel is called the son of God. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And we see in 2 Samuel, 
In verse 14 of chapter 7, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. David is called God's son. Israel is called God's son. What does this tell us of Jesus? Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true king. And because Jesus is the one through whom God spoke with finality, Jesus is the true prophet. Jesus is the fullness of all that would be revealed. This is so crucial for us to understand. Those that are in Christ, then, have the true word. Those that are in Christ have the true king. Those that are in Christ are the true Israel. Because Christ is the true Israel. He, this is why Jesus says, I am the vine. What was Israel continually called? The vine. What did that vine do? It did not produce fruit. Those were all shadows pointing to a fulfillment in Christ. But there's something else about this son, is that not only is he the true Israel, is he the true vine, is he the true king, the true prophet, the true eternal priest, he's also the eternally begotten son of God. You see that in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is God in flesh. He is the eternally begotten Son. He is the superior revelation of God. And in the finality of Christ's revelation, we have great comfort knowing that we need not be looking for anyone or anything else by which we may be saved because He has spoken to us in His Son. Now, the whole purpose of this that we will come to over and over again is found in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. This is all for that purpose. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And so let me ask you this morning, are you satisfied with the word of Christ? Is this word sufficient to you? And here's how you test it. Do I look for guidance outside of God's word? That's how we test it. Are we satisfied with God's word? Is it truly given to us as a fulfillment of God's revelation? Are we waiting for something else to come about? Well, where do you look for guidance? Let me ask you, do you treasure this word? As the psalmist said, he treasured it more than honey, which would have been the, a delicacy of sweetness. Do I recognize this as authoritative? And here's how we test this, is this. Do you rest in Christ? Do you find comfort in that He is the final revelation of God? Do you find comfort in the fact that in Christ, all of God's promises are realized in Him? 
That it, God is a God that keeps His covenant even when His people fail. And so what does this mean for us? Let me tell you, friend, if this morning you have struggles in life, and if you're waiting for a new word, if you're dealing with the storms of life and the, the fear of all that's taking place in the world, the answer is Christ. That's not just a cliche Christian thing to say. That is to take God's word seriously, to say that he has spoken to us in his son, and that's it. It's a wonderful reminder to those that he called, he keeps. And so this morning, if you fear what seems to be chaos, look to our all-sufficient king that is sovereignly ruling over all things. And he's given us his word. It's complete. It's final. It's authoritative. And it brings us comfort because in the author who gave it to us, we find rest. What do we know? We told this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He won't change on you. He won't shift with time. And may we say as a church, the words of Peter, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. May we not look any further than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given us his word as a sure, perfect, immutable, unchangeable word. And we're not waiting for new additions to it. It's complete because the Son has come. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word that you have given us, this tangible word that we can read and put into our hearts, but we're so grateful for the eternal word, your Son, our Lord and our Savior, and that it's in Him and Him alone that we find rest and security. It's in Him that we have assurance. It's in Him that we find comfort, knowing that He is our eternal King. He is our great prophet. We thank you that we don't have to look for another word, but you've given us a complete one. We're not looking for, to the world for answers, for your word is the answer. Give us hearts that desire your word with increasing desire. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.